Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. Each week since the outbreak of the pandemic, I've hosted a conference call to discuss aspects of COVID-19. The discussion follows a unique format. Each speaker only gets six minutes. This keeps the conversation concise, interesting, and informative. After everyone has had a chance to speak, there is a question and answer period. I end this session with a quick note of optimism from each speaker. I want to make a shout out to my friend Larry Klein, who is in the ICU with COVID-19 in Newport Beach, California. Keep fighting and we love you. In a few minutes, I will turn the call over to my co-host Rick Banks, who is a professor of law at Stanford, as well as the co-founder and faculty director of the Stanford Center for Racial Justice. Last week, I asked Rick to speak on the show. He said he would do something even better. He offered to put together a group of Stanford faculty members to challenge our audience's assumptions about race relations in America. The conversation about race is incredibly topical right now. The nine speakers that will speak today are all members of the Stanford faculty and are leaders in their respective fields. Our first speaker is Allison Hobbs. She is a historian and director of African and African American Studies who will discuss the power of protests. Richard Ford is a law professor and an expert on civil rights and he will address the fact that COVID did not discriminate, but people do. Claude Steele is a social psychologist, and he will help us find ways to create trust across the racial divide. Former Secretary of State Condi Rice has recently been selected to be the director of the Hoover Institution. She's had an incredible personal journey that began in the segregated city of Birmingham. Condi will tell us about her path to the White House and beyond. Nate Persley is a professor of law and communications. Nate will tell us about how COVID will worsen racial inequality in the coming electoral process. Michelle Anderson is a law professor who will speak about how ongoing segregation exacerbates poverty. Jim Campbell is an African-American historian, and he will give us a better understanding of the current outcry about monuments and historical memory. Brian Lowry is a social psychologist who helps us better understand racial attitudes and its effects on perceptions of privilege. Finally, our last speaker is John Donahue, a law professor and economist who will tell us about gun violence. The Chatham House rule applies for this discussion, and this call is being recorded. A number of listeners over the past weeks have been sending me requests to include their friends and family on the invitation list for what happens next. We've had over 800 new contacts added in the past week. Please use the link that I sent you to automatically add your friends to the permanent list. And now let's hear from Rick Banks. Rick, go ahead. Hello, everyone. My name is Rick Banks. I am a law professor at Stanford University, and I am delighted to co-host this week's call with Larry Bernstein. The presenters, as Larry mentioned, are my Stanford faculty colleagues who will discuss challenges and controversies related to race in various domains in our society. Uh, before I say more, though, let me just acknowledge uh, my amazement at the enormous amount of energy, time, attention, and care Larry has put into building this call and this community over the last many months. I am inspired, too, by the vision he has brought to uh, bear in focusing us on the challenges and uncertainties arising from an unprecedented global pandemic. After the killing of George Floyd uh, and the protests that followed, and how they plunged us into another crisis, Larry quickly expanded the call to encompass issues related to race and policing. Those conversations have been very enlightening. As protests have spread throughout the country though, and indeed to many other nations as well, one thing has become clear. 
which is that the problem of race and racism is not limited to policing or even to criminal justice. There are long-standing racial dynamics and inequalities in our society, as our speaker's comments will attest, that extend well beyond the context of policing, which all raises a difficult and unsettling question. How do we find ourselves now, in the year 2020, in the midst of a racial crisis that has implicated such a wide range of institutions? Our nation ended slavery in the 19th century, and then in the 20th we passed laws prohibiting racial discrimination throughout much of American life, yet here we are. How did this happen, and how do we get beyond it? That's the core question that prompted me to, to join Larry in organizing this call. We confront some hard questions which require uh, deep research and analytical capabilities. This call is part of the process of exposing the, the broader public to the sort of research and analysis that we have uh, undertaken at Stanford uh, among my faculty colleagues from a variety of disciplines. Uh, I should note too, as Larry mentioned, we've recently announced the start of the Stanford Center for Racial Justice, uh, which will also aim to deepen research and dialogue about race and racism in American society. I have a more personal motivation for this call though, and a, more personal sense of my own uh, belief about the urgency of these issues. My wife and I have three sons, uh, all at home now. Their lives, along with ours, have been halted by the pandemic in many ways. We've attempted to give them some solace by reminding them that they are living through a time of historical significance. We tell our sons, you know, just remember, when you're old and gray, your grandchildren will come to you as they write book reports about this time, and they will want to interview you about the pandemic and what it was like. How did you live through it? What did you do? Yet as I watched the protests unfold in the aftermath of George Floyd's killing, I began to wonder about whether this period will be of historical significance in another way as well. Whether our grandchildren will look back and ask in the struggle for racial justice and against racism, what did we do? What role did we play? This is a struggle we confront today that's not only confined to this time. It's actually the struggle of our nation. It goes back to the founding and before. I wonder sometimes when I think about my children and their children, whether history will judge us too for how we chose to act or not at this time. As the leader of an organization on whose board I'm privileged to sit told his team just remember, this is a time when legacies are made. Before we act and make those legacies, though, we need to try better to understand the nature of the problems we confront, hence our discussion today. The comments you're about to hear from these speakers are the result of years, decades, lifetimes indeed, of research and inquiry into some of the hardest problems in American society. So with that, let the conversation begin. Larry, back to you. Okay. Um, our first speaker is Allison Hobbs. We've asked her to speak about uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and the power protest. She is historian and director of African and African American Studies at Stanford, and she's also the author of A Chosen Exile, A History of Racial Passing in American Life. Allison, please go ahead. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Larry and Rick, for this opportunity to join this call and this very important conversation. So 
the most important point that I hope to make is one about the importance of history. History helps us to understand our current moment, no matter how painful or disorienting as it might be. We can turn to history in the same way that we might turn to an old friend or an older wise relative who can comfort us and reassure us that they too have been through wrenching and cataclysmic moments and they survived and we will too. So let me start with a bit of background on our current moment so that we can better understand it within a historical context. We are experiencing a crisis multiplied by a crisis multiplied by a crisis. We are experiencing numerous pandemics occurring simultaneously. We are seeing increasing cases of the coronavirus around the country and a mortality count that has soared past the grim 130,000 mark, making this the largest public health crisis in generations. We are witnessing the highest unemployment rate since the Great Depression, with, according to Fortune magazine, 26 to 27 million Americans unemployed. Then, in late May, we witnessed a gruesome public lynching that circulated widely on the news and around the Internet. As George Floyd's life escaped so horrifically, we were left in a similarly traumatized state that reminded me of a description in James Weldon Johnson's 1912 novel, The Autobiography of an Ex-Colored Man, where the protagonist stumbles upon a lynching and described himself as, quote, fixed to the spot where he stood, powerless to take his eyes from what he did not want to see. Our moment has left us to worry and wonder, how did so much misery and so much suffering come about so quickly? For African Americans, these crises are undeniably interconnected. We know that black and brown communities have been disproportionately affected by the coronavirus, with black people dying at five times the rate of white Americans, according to the CDC. In death, George Floyd's name has become a metaphor for the numerous inequalities that have become too stark to ignore. As Dr. Martin Luther King famously said in a speech titled, The Other America, given at Stanford in April 1967, quote, a riot is the language of the unheard. And what is it that America has failed to hear? It has failed to hear that the promises of freedom and justice have not been met. And it has failed to hear that large segments of white society are more concerned about tranquility and the status quo than about justice, equality, and humanity. King's words sound eerily similar to the feelings that emerged in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder a feeling that the state has failed to provide basic needs for the population, health care, clean water, a quality education, access to employment, decent housing, and environmental justice, just to name a few. Jelani Cobb recently wrote in The New Yorker that black Americans recognize this reality, but it's largely invisible to white Americans. 
as with men who upon hearing Me Too testimonies ask their wives, daughters, sisters, and friends, is it really that bad? The shock of revelation that attended the video of George Floyd's death is itself a kind of inequality, a barometer of the extent to which one group of Americans have moved through life largely free from the burden of such terrible knowledge. For black people, there has been an enduring sense that they are not getting the benefit of their humanity. In the American literary record, this begins with the terrible spectacle recounted in 1845 by Frederick Douglass when he witnessed the beating of his aunt, one of the most well-known scenes of torture in the literature of slavery. These scenes continue to haunt American history, especially scenes of black children being the victims of brutality. We remember Emmett Till, the 14-year-old child from Chicago who was lynched in 1955 in Mississippi and whose mother made the unimaginably brave decision to have an open casket funeral so that the whole world could see what they had done to her boy. She believed that her child's death belonged to all of us and that her private grief could make a very public statement. In the 1960s, as more and more Americans owned televisions, they watched dramatic scenes of peaceful black protesters dressed in their Sunday best, being brutalized by white mobs. This news coverage shocked the conscience of many white Americans and changed their minds about civil rights. We remember the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing in Birmingham in 1963 that killed four young girls. Now, across the street from the church is Kelly Ingram Park, which contains emotionally powerful sculptures that depict the civil rights struggle in Birmingham. When I visited Birmingham, I was deeply moved by the sculpture in honor of the four girls. There is a particular detail on the sculpture that made me pause. It is the detail of one girl tying the bow on the back of another girl's dress. You can imagine the girls getting ready for church that morning. This sculpture powerfully captures their childlike joy and innocence. More recently, we can remember the graphic images of Tamir Rice, a 12-year-old child being shot in two seconds. Elizabeth Anderson, sorry, Elizabeth Alexander has recently written an essay called The Trayvon Generation, and she talks about how this generation of children are seeing images on their phones and with no filter or warning, and outside of the presence of the adults who love them, and she worries about what the effect of this will be on young people. So in conclusion, I want to underscore that we are seeing a real change now. It's an inflection point. These are not just repeats of past events, but rather the consequences of the failures of the government and the economic establishment to resolve crises that have accumulated over time. After George Floyd's death and the agonizing, protracted manner in which it occurred, we saw a much more multiracial group of protesters than in previous years. 
71% of white Americans now say that racial discrimination is a big problem. They, too, rushed into the streets to protest. The New York Times reported that the Black Lives Matter movement may be the largest movement in American history, and protests and expressions of solidarity are occurring all around the world. So this is a very important point. Things change. If there's one lesson that history teaches us, it is that history is always changing. Of course, there is a spiritual fatigue. As James Baldwin said in 1978, quote, to look around the United States today is enough to make prophets and angels weep. And the same could be said of our moment. But this moment is also deeply inspiring when the state fails, when there is an utter lack of moral leadership, people of all backgrounds come together to fill that gap. Many scholars have referred to this period as the third reconstruction, the first being the period that immediately followed the Civil War, the second being the Civil Rights Movement, and this being the third. This reminds us that America is unfinished, it is an ongoing project. This reminds us of how hard and how long people have fought for freedom. Our democracy is contradictory and it is fragile. It must be cared for and fought for. And perhaps the gentle and determined caretaking of our democracy is our most important job. Thank you. Allison, thank you. Um, quick question for you before you drop off. Um, these protests are very ubiquitous, um, but there's been some confusion as to what the protesters want. Is this about police brutality or is it about something else? I think this is about a whole host of issues. I think that we're really seeing the interconnectedness of many social, political, and economic problems. And I think that we should be inspired by the creativity of this moment, that this is a truly grassroots moment where many of the issues that the coronavirus have really put in quite stark relief for all of us to see are really being wrestled with now. And we're really thinking about how do we reimagine our society? How do we reimagine our country? And part of that is addressing police brutality. Part of that is addressing access to health care. Part of that is addressing environmental justice. I mean, it's this whole host of issues that we can now see are, are quite interconnected. Uh, Allison, let me follow up on that very, very briefly. So you mentioned this time as potentially uh, a time when we're on the verge of a third reconstruction. Uh, so if we've had two prior reconstructions and we need a third, evidently those two didn't work out. Uh, is there any single lesson you can draw or that we can draw now looking back at the history of the, the prior periods of reconstruction about mistakes that were made or things that we should do differently this time around? I mean, I think that what we can draw from those previous periods is a lesson about the strength and the persistence of white supremacy in our society. And that in order for us, in order for this third reconstruction to be successful, 
we really have to think through how do we dismantle white supremacy and the ways that white supremacy permeates so many aspects of our country, whether it's in, an empl- in employment, whether it's in healthcare, whether it's in all of these different elements. If we don't really resolve that issue, then we'll be hoping for the success of a fourth reconstruction. So I hope that this is a moment where we will really take that challenge seriously and where we will do our best and really fight to dismantle and to remake our society in a much more equal, uh, multiracial, multicultural way. Allison, thank you. Our next speaker is Richard Thompson Ford. He's going to be talking about that COVID doesn't discriminate, but we do. Richard Thompson Ford is an expert on civil rights and anti-discrimination law at the Stanford Law School. Go ahead. Hi. Uh, Thank you so much for uh, inviting me on this call. I... um, We've talked, or Allison mentioned, uh, the great disparities in uh, both infection rates and death rates in the COVID-19 virus, that African Americans in particular um, have much um, higher rates in in both of those cases. And, you know, um, as an African American, I read stories like this and think, damn, black folks can't get a break. You know, even the virus is racist. Uh, But, of course, a virus isn't racist. Um, and so I'd like to unpack some of what may be going on and suggest that there are a number of policy responses that we need to have in order to deal with um, th- these types of issues, the issue of, uh, of the disparity of, uh, of the virus. Some of them are going to involve um, civil rights enforcement. And I think it's natural to, um, when you hear about a racial disparity, to think that um, a civil rights law is the appropriate solution to that. That's one of our major responses to racial injustice in our society. Um, but there are a number of other policy responses that will also be necessary. So let me try to unpack this. First of all, of course, there's a lot we don't know about the virus. It's possible that um, there's some biological susceptibility um, that's distinctive to African Americans. That's something about it's a bit like sickle cell anemia. I'll leave that one to one side. Um, Another possibility that has to be seriously confronted involves some kind of racial bias on the part of doctors. And this is where civil rights laws might really have the greatest bite. Um, Some doctors might simply be flat-out racist um, and and act with animus against African Americans, and that would result in lower-quality care. Another possibility that's been fairly well documented is various types of subconscious bias that might affect um, medical care and treatment. So, for instance, there are studies that have demonstrated that many doctors feel that African Americans have higher pain um, thresholds or um, are tougher in some way, and that may lead to different levels of medical care. Um, Another possibility is that subconscious bias results in less effective medical treatment because of poor interactions between doctors and patients. The the inability to establish a rapport um, could lead to lower quality care, and that might lead to um, higher death rates from infected patients. 
And then finally, um, there are questions of triage and whether or not subconscious biases may result in medical professionals simply failing to extend the same um, the aggressive level of care to African Americans. Now, these are all things that civil rights laws might attack in various ways. Um, another possibility, of course, and, and that's been discussed is um, uh, the underlying health conditions that um, are, are seen at higher levels in African-American communities like obesity or um, heart disease that would lead to um, higher fatality rates for COVID-19. Um, and then finally, and I want to spend a little more time on this, there's socioeconomic disadvantages. Uh, it's African-Americans disproportionately live in segregated neighborhoods with concentrated poverty. And I know that Professor Anderson will talk more about this later, um, but those problems could lead in a number of ways to higher susceptibility to the virus. Crowded living conditions would make it harder to social distance. Um, employment in fields with close, um, in service industries um, would make, make it harder to isolate oneself and therefore result in higher exposure to the virus. Um, employment, which and, and African-Americans disproportionately are employed um, in, in part-time jobs and also unfortunately in gray market jobs where they have less, um, and because healthcare is tied to employment, may have less access to healthcare. Um, and all of these factors um, could, certainly could play a role. But I, I just want to conclude by suggesting that each of these suggests a different solution. And so, as is true of so many of the racial problems in our society, a multi-pronged approach is appropriate. Of course, if we're talking about racist doctors um, motivated by animus, then a punitive approach is appropriate. We want to punish those racist doctors and again, get them to either change their ways or move them out of the profession. Um, if we're talking about something like subconscious bias, it's much more likely that um, a public education approach um, and consciousness raising um, would be an appropriate response. Um, if we're talking about problems in triaging, it's possible both that civil rights laws, but also just more, more um, effective guidelines about how triaging is approached could be effective. If we're talking about underlying health conditions, then public education and outreach to try to reduce those um, underlying health conditions among um, vulnerable, vulnerable populations may be appropriate, but also looking at why those underlying conditions are there. And that brings me back to the socioeconomic factors. Um, lack, of, uh, lack of access to higher quality food, um, segregated neighborhoods in which people live in what have been described as food deserts, uh, where the high quality produce and other types of um, nutritious food that people living in middle and upper middle class neighborhoods take for granted aren't available. Um, and of course, the neighborhood segregation, which has its roots in our past, including things like um, a racially exclusionary zoning, um, which was part of public policy until the early 20th century, racially exclusionary policies that were promulgated not only by local and state, but also federal governments until the mid 20th century, um, and the ongoing problem of discrimination by private actors, including um, everything from banks um, to real estate agents that are also quite recently well-documented um, cases. And those are cases where civil rights laws could um, have a greater effect, particularly if we were willing to be more assertive about enforcing them. But it's a multi-pronged I, I need to cut you off. Sure uh, thing. I'll come back to Thank you. Q&A. 
Uh, our next speaker is Claude Steele. Claude will speak about creating trust across racial lines in the age of polarization. Claude Steele is a social psychologist who has studied stereotypes, how, how they affect us, and what we can do about it. He's also the author of Whistling Vivaldi, How Stereotype Affects Us and What We Can Do. Please go ahead, Claude. Thank you. Uh, I, I would say my research in the last number of years uh, and thinking has focused on a, a basic question that is perhaps part of the root of the current moments that we're uh, facing in a larger society. The question is, how do you achieve a successfully diverse community? Uh, and that, uh, by that I mean a community within an organization, within an institution, within um, a classroom. How do you make diversity work in the sense that everybody feels like they are able to contribute from the standpoint of their identities and their backgrounds, that, that those identities and backgrounds are valued for their perspective, and at the same time they feel uh, that they're not going to be disadvantaged by those identities. Uh, that kind of, that would be a, one way of describing what a, a successfully diverse community is. This research uh, is, is derived from our research on stereotype threat. Uh, I'll give you a thumbnail definition of that and then some examples to connect it to the larger question. Uh, stereotype threat is simply being in a situation or doing something for which a negative stereotype about one of your identities, your age, your race, your gender, is relevant. Uh, when that happens, you know that you could be judged or treated in terms of that stereotype. And if the situation or the thing you're doing is important to you, and the prospect of being seen that way can be upsetting, distracting, it can interfere with your functioning right there in the immediate situation and maybe can deter you if you have that experience on a regular basis in that domain, it can deter you from choosing a whole walk of life. That's what stereotype uh, threat is. Uh, a lot of the research has looked at its effects on intellectual performance. Today I want to talk about its effects on our relationships with each other and I want to give an example of of uh, how it might work. This, imagine a typical parent-teacher conference at school. And the parents in this uh, little drama are African-Americans coming to talk about their, their son with their son's teacher. And the teacher is, they're, they're meeting to have a conversation. The uh, uh, in that situation, I've been one, uh, is are concerned that their child not be seen in terms of the stereotypes that they know are out there, that maybe doesn't have the same abilities, maybe he's aggressive. Uh, they don't want their child to be seen that way, and they want the school to recognize the talent potential of their son and to invest in it. The teacher, on the other hand, uh, and so they're, they're on edge almost inherently defending against the possibility of their child being seen that way, uh, the, the, the teacher, on the other hand, say it's a white teacher in this situation, uh, is worried that any kind of criticism of uh, maybe intended to be constructive uh, could wind up getting her seen as racist, perhaps. That's the stereotype threat that she's dealing with in that situation. Uh, first, I think it's important in relation to Allison's remarks that this is history coming down to visit these people in this situation, making this situation fraught. These stereotypes uh, come out of our, uh, of, of our histories, and here they are in the present moment, affecting our ability to relate to each other, to uh, trust each other in this situation. And that really is the word I want to settle on for the, for the moment, that uh, I hope that illustrates how 
the stereotypes and our identities in certain situations can uh, uh, problematize trust, can make it difficult for us to trust each other. It's a, uh, an unfortunate legacy of our history uh, that, that is still with us in our attempts to relate to each other and that can affect our abilities to function together in, in diverse settings. That's the, uh, the, the argument here. And it can have profound effects. I'll give you a, a very quick example of uh, an experiment that I think illustrates this. The, the question of the research is, how can a white professor give critical feedback to a black student and have that feedback be trusted? You might want to extrapolate this to uh, a manager-employee situation. I think the same logic would, would hold. Uh, so we had Stanford students, white and black, uh, write essays about their favorite teacher uh, and uh, for uh, ostensibly for a magazine on teaching. And, and the idea was maybe their articles, if their essays, if they were good, might be published in that uh, magazine. They come back two days later to get feedback on the essay they wrote. And we're interested in how much they trust the feedback and how motivating the feedback is. And we vary how the feedback is, giving, is given. And what we found, uh, uh, somewhat to our surprise, is that when you give the feedback straightforwardly or even with a positive statement about the student before you give them the, the critical feedback, when you do either of those, the black students don't trust the feedback, not nearly as much as white students do. And these are Stanford students, highly selected, strong uh, students. That's what's a little surprising. But then when you think about it, you can see what's going on, which is that uh, from the standpoint of black students, they, they can't quite be sure uh, that the feedback is coming, is, is related to their work versus related to how the feedback giver may perceive their group, the stereotypes that they may be subject to in that, in that situation. It ambiguates the feedback. It makes it difficult to trust the feedback. And in this situation, it makes it difficult to benefit from the feedback. And that is a predicament of identity that uh, is going to be with them throughout their uh, schooling experience, really as a function of the history of the United States, it's the stereotypes it's generated and their relevance in this immediate situation to interpreting what's going on with them. That's the first uh, point to be made here. There is good news. There is a way to give that feedback that cuts through that and, and enables uh, black students to trust it. Uh, when the, and that is as follows. The feedback giver says, uh, look, I've, I've, we're using very high standards in evaluating these essays. They may be published. I've looked at your essay, and I think you can meet those standards. Here's the critical feedback. Well, when it came that way, with signals that told the black students that their abilities were trusted and respected in this situation, that the feedback was a part of that, uh, they trusted the feedback uh, uh, categorically, just absolutely, and were highly motivated to work on their essays to improve them. Well, I think that gets at a core challenge of uh, the diverse American society uh, that, that we have, uh, that uh, it, for our institutions to function well, for our relationships to function well, we have to pay more attention to building trust among ourselves, that we can't presume it in light of the history that we have, in light of the things we see on television every night. It's a fundamental psychological challenge for, certainly for African Americans and I think other minorities and I think the poor, but it's also a challenge for, uh, for white Americans. Can we trust ourselves together with, with each, each other? So uh, I, I, 
I'll come back. I'll come back to you in the Q and A in a few minutes. Um, our next speaker is former Secretary of State Condi Rice, and she will be the upcoming director of the Hoover Institution. Go ahead, Condi. Well, thank you very much, and thanks for having me on the call. Um, I want to start by saying that uh, Allison's description of Birmingham was interesting because Birmingham isn't history to me; it's where I lived. I was uh, eight years old when those little girls were blown up in that church in Birmingham, and one of them had been in my father's kindergarten. One of them was in my uncle's homeroom. Uh, so for me, it wasn't watching it on television. It was feeling the shudder and knowing what had happened. Uh, so I hope in establishing that, you'll see that I, I'm not clinical about issues of race in America. I live them. I will say uh, that, in fact, it helped me as Secretary of State to have lived those because I could say to people as I went around the world talking about the value of democracy, the importance of democracy, I could say, like, I don't see America through rose-colored glasses. I grew up in Jim Crow, Alabama, where my family couldn't go to a movie theater, to a restaurant, where Birmingham became Bombingham uh, in the 1960s. And I would talk to people about the fact that uh, democracy, which requires people, and Claude just mentioned the word trust, requires people to trust institutions rather than clan or family uh, to, to secure their rights. Uh, the trust in those institutions has to be built over time. Uh, if you're talking about authoritarians, by the way, and, uh, and race and ethnicity, they just don't worry about it. They just oppress races or ethnicities that they don't wish to deal with. But democracies have to depend on their institutions, which are based on majority rule, to still respect uh, and carry out the rights of minorities. And that, to me, is the essential problem. The United States has made some progress in that regard, uh, but we obviously have very much further to go in terms of trust in institutions and rooting out structural uh, racism. I just want to make two other points. Uh, one is that when I see people uh, going into the streets uh, around the world uh, in solidarity with the United States, I think that's great, except I do say to them, look in the mirror. Uh, there actually isn't a country in the world that uh, deals as well with race as America, and that may be shocking to you. Uh, but I will note that uh, Brazil, which probably has the, uh, the demographics that look most like those of the United States, a once slaveholding society uh, of Africans, um, but if you, uh, the Brazilians used to say they didn't have any race problems, but if you looked, you knew that the field hands were African, uh, the hotel staffs were mulatto, and the government was Portuguese. And one of the really high points of my time as secretary is I got to go to the Afro-Brazilian homeland of Salvador Bahia. And I was taken there because the president of Brazil, Lula da Silva, uh, wanted me to see it. And when he selected his first Afro-Brazilian uh, member of his cabinet, he called me and he said, I want you to come down and be a part of his ceremony. That just lets you know something about how far societies have to come. So as we deal with America, uh, we need to remember that human institutions are just imperfect. And trying to get to a more perfected America requires uh, protest. That has always been a part of how we've moved things forward. It requires uh, working to restructure and to reform institutions. It requires using those institutions. Um, as I said, growing up in Birmingham, I also recognize that as much as the protests in Kelly Ingram Park, not too far from where I grew up, were a part of calling the country to, uh, to account, 
So too was the work of Thurgood Marshall and the NAACP that goes all the way back to the Margol Report in 1937 that chose cases to bring before the Supreme Court to try to knock down Jim Crow laws one by one. And so we have to be willing to use the institutions if we are going to make progress. And then finally, I just want to say um, that while we're dealing with structural racism, while we're dealing with systemic racism, and we have to do that, I hope we don't give a message to our kids that achievement isn't possible. Because it actually is possible, even within the context of the racism that we experience. When I was growing up, I was told, you have to be twice as good. My parents believed that somehow that was going to be a shield against uh, racism. If you were twice as good, they had to take account of you. Uh, Claude Steele just talked about the importance of helping kids to understand how to take criticism and to move past it and to be confident enough to do that. And so I know we're going to have a lot of conversations about structural racism, about systemic racism, about the racism within our institutions. But we also have to keep making certain that those institutions are not blocking achievement for our kids. And for me, that comes right down to educational opportunity. And for me, it means that one of the most important questions we've got to ask is why is the achievement gap so stubborn for African-American kids? So perhaps I have a little bit different perspective on it. I grew up in Birmingham. Uh, the idea that you could ignore race, race was everything in Birmingham. And so in some sense, it was nothing. Uh, you lived with it every day. And uh, it isn't, for me, something that is therefore academic. It's something that I lived. But I, what I learned from it was that uh, you can make human progress. You said we were going to have a word for optimism. I'll make mine now, uh, which is uh, to keep pressing these institutions, keep pressing America to be what it promises to be, uh, but to remember uh, that uh, this is a long journey, and it's been a long journey for every human institution, not just ours. Thank you. Thank you. That was beautiful. Um, our next speaker is Nate Persley. His topic is the virus and the vote, how COVID exacerbates racial inequalities in the 2020 election. He is a professor of law and communications and a co-author of The Law of Democracy. Nate, please go ahead. Thanks very much for having me. Um, I was uh, research director of the Presidential Commission on Election Administration in 2013. This was the uh, bipartisan commission, really the last bipartisan election commission that we had in the U.S. Um, and that was the one that was dealing with long lines on election day, natural disasters in voting, voting machines and the like. Uh, it was led by Mitt Romney's lawyer, Ben Ginsburg, and um, uh, Bob Bauer, the former White House counsel under President Obama. And as part of the work for that commission, uh, one of the things that, that I realized that interested me the most were outside shocks to the election system that don't actually come from uh, election-related issues. But for example, at the time, we were dealing with things like school shootings and how that would affect the uh, disappearance of polling places from schools. Or we dealt with the problem of how we don't teach cursive in school anymore, and that led to lots of mismatched absentee ballots among young people because they don't have a consistent signature. And so as the pandemic has now afflicted our election administration system, this is the most significant exogenous shock to our electoral system that we've ever seen. And um, the challenge that COVID presents is that it is forcing close to 100 million people to vote in a different way than they are accustomed to. 
we have never in U.S. history had to change the way we are voting in such a short period of time for this many people. And what I want to talk about today is the uh, racially uh, discriminatory effects that happen as a result of the virus's impact on election administration. I want to uh, start by saying that when more, most of the time when you talk about uh, racial discrimination in voting, we're talking about things like vote suppression and the like. What I want to impress upon you today is that the impact of election administrative changes to deal with the COVID pandemic are themselves going to have a order of magnitude greater effect on racial inequality in voting in this election, and for that matter, on the right to vote generally, uh, than any of the things that often take away the headlines on things like um, voter suppression and the like. Um, and so while the problem, as I suggested, is this massive shift in the, in the way that people are voting, this, the, the uh, solutions are quite simple. We need to move as many people to mail balloting as possible. We need to retrofit as many polling places as possible to ensure social distance. Um, this is much easier said than done. We have the most complicated electoral system in the world, entrusted to close to 10,000 independent jurisdictions. We don't really have a national election authority in the US, but one of the ironic things about moving to a massive shift to vote by mail is that the United States Postal Service becomes that national de facto electoral authority. Uh, and so all of the stresses that, that affect it will then have downstream effects on the right to vote. Um, so I want to just talk briefly about uh, how the shift to mail voting and how the what's happening in, in polling places is having a disparate impact on race. So as you know, um, and because it's certainly been controversial in the president's Twitter feed and elsewhere, um, we are seeing this massive shift to absentee voting and vote by mail. All of those socioeconomic and racial biases that affect residency and the permanence of people's residence and reliable housing then are affected by this uh, shift to vote by mail. So as I said before, we need jurisdictions to partner with the U.S. Postal Service to make sure that we have, um, uh, you know, effective mail voting. Um, but there are places that don't have a reliable mail, mail service, as well as uh, have, are at the sort of tip of the spear when it particularly Indian reservations, we're seeing real crises in, in both election administration and in um, pandemic preparedness. Um, second, an election that's run by mail is only as good as the address list that the post office and the election administrators have for people. What we are seeing because of the recession that accompanies COVID is millions of people, primarily those who uh, can't afford where they're living, will be shifting their addresses over the succeeding months. Uh, those folks will not be able to receive the mail ballots that they uh, would likely get at their residences. So all of those socioeconomic predictors that affect residency will then have an effect on mail ballot. More to the point, one thing that we're studying um, uh, here at the Healthy Elections Project, which I started with a colleague at MIT, is that African Americans in some states are twice as likely to have their mail ballots rejected as white voters. And that has to do a lot with both the, the likelihood that they receive their ballot on time and that it's returned on time, but also that whether they have voted it correctly by having a signature on the outside, because if you're someone who hasn't voted by mail, you are less likely to know that you are supposed to sign a ballot, which you might think otherwise would be anonymous. And so you, we should be expecting hundreds of thousands of mail ballots to be rejected because of these signature mismatches, maybe much more than that. And 
we should also note that while the, the states are moving toward, toward vote by mail, um, they're also consolidating on a massive scale polling places. And what we've seen is that uh, racial minorities in particular prefer to vote in person uh, in polling places. And so we will lose at least a quarter of our polling places in this election, probably much more. Um, the reason we will be losing it is because there's a shortage of poll workers. The senior citizens who typically man the polls are not going to be there this time because they are the most endangered population. Um, there was some talk, and, and it's been used in the primary, of bringing out the National Guard to staff the polling places. But you can imagine in the sort of post-George uh, uh, Floyd moment that we're in that that might be an option that's less on the table than it was before. Second, there is a shortage of suitable polling places, particularly in urban areas, that can ensure uh, uh, social distancing. The schools, the senior living facilities, and the firehouses that are often uh, uh, the most ubiquitous of polling places are not available to outsiders. And if they're not available in the fall, certainly the, the schools, um, if they aren't available in the fall, since one out of every uh, four Americans votes in a school, uh, uh, then we have a real crisis in in-person voting. Uh, this also, we know, leads to confusion among voters and will lead to lower turnout. And there's considerable studies showing, uh, um, particularly among Latinos, that that has led to uh, lower turnouts and higher provisional ballot places, uh, provisional ballot rates. So, so the, the crisis that we are facing in terms of polling places and polling place voting is a crisis of people, places, and things. We've lost the people uh, who are the poll workers. We've lost the uh, polling places, and we've also lost the things that we need in order to ensure a smooth election. Um, we need an unprecedented effort, national effort, um, to buy the PPE for poll workers to make sure that people can vote in safety, um, as well as all those other materials that we need uh, for mail balloting. And so what we're trying to do here at Stanford through the Healthy Elections Project that we're doing with MIT is to work with local election officials uh, to try to deal with these problems. Uh, because as with so many things, as uh, Richard Ford was saying, uh, related to the virus, um, that while the virus itself might not be racist, because of the uh, combination of the racial and economic effects and then the, the cash-strapped jurisdictions that are affected disproportionately by the virus, uh, it's going to have a massive disparate effect on the basis of race for certain communities. Thank you. Thank you, Nate. Um, our next speaker is Michelle Wild-Anderson. Uh, Michelle is going to speak about COVID and the problem of segregated and concentrated poverty. Uh, she's a professor at Stanford in the law school and is a scholar of both state and local government law. Go ahead, Michelle. Hi, everyone. Um, the police killing videos over the past few years mark the first time in my life that I've watched something other than footage of war in which people, not actors, are dying at another person's hands. Yet even in the terrible company of those videos, the recording of Floyd's death somehow seemed among the worst. The reason I think is not that the video um, depicts suffering. The video is especially dehumanizing because of the way the officers are deaf to the people shouting at them, warning and pleading. These onlookers are standing right there trying to get the officer to lift his knee. But it's like the officers can't hear them, can't imagine that if they listened to the people yelling, it would be better for everyone. Seeing this video made me think of the thousands of times that African Americans have reasoned, asked, argued, written, cried, begged, demanded, or yelled for recognition of racial injustice and violence against members of their communities. 
These efforts have not been ignored every time, but that video seems to represent the too many times that it doesn't seem to matter what tone an African-American takes in calling for dignity and safety and mercy. Our larger society seems unable to hear the calls because they are coming from black voices or on behalf of black victims. Sometimes it seems like our color and class chasms are so wide that speech in any form cannot cross them. Eventually, in this case as in so many struggles for justice dating back to our nation's revolutionary war, the desperation of the message finds modes of expression that cannot be easily ignored. This problem of deafness applies to politics too. We can't hear how bad things have gotten in broke post-industrial areas. Trump makes this out to be a white, problem for white places, but American post-industrialism is one of the most devastating problems facing African Americans today. It is one of the most devastating problems facing Latinos and low-income Asian American immigrants and refugees today. Even with the post-industrial crisis in the news more than ever, we are still too siloed and segregated to hear what these towns have been telling us. Especially in cities of color, politics conveys that their people and governments dug their own hole. In that way, the Floyd video reminds me of Flint, where low-income mothers were pleading for someone in state government to test their water for its safety because they could see it was filthy and corrosive because they could see their kids' health problems. But everyone in higher governments blew them off. There they go again, they seem to say. Flint and Detroit and black Michigan are always complaining about something. The Flints and Garys and Detroits and East Chicago's and Newburgs and Stockton's have been warning us for years that things were getting really bad because manufacturing job losses since 1985 have been so spatially concentrated. Most regions of the country have one or two, most regions have one or two big metropolises that drive a much larger area's economy. You all recognize this pattern from New York, where the city's metro accounts for 80% of state GDP. The reality is that we're all like New York now. The Boston metro drives more than three-quarters of the Massachusetts economy. Chicago's economy not only drives the Illinois economy, but surpasses Ohio's entire GDP. What is the future for the towns beyond the biggest cities in Oregon, Washington, North Carolina, Georgia, Iowa, Pennsylvania, Kentucky, California, Texas, and Maine? The thing these areas wanted us to hear was that their local governments and schools were completely broke and all the easy fixes people told them to take didn't work. All across America are places where, even before COVID, there's no funding or for after-school or summer programs to keep kids learning and safe outside the 180 part-time days of the school, public school year. There are high-crime places with no street lights or drug treatment, program slots within six months, no 911 dispatch on nights and weekends. In much of low-income rural America where our farm workers and industrial workers live, there's no sewage disposal or flood control. The thing they wanted us to hear was that state electorates want no-cost solutions, but local leaders have seen that such solutions just hurt local economies more. I can talk more about those in Q&A, but I'll say now that one thing that post-industrial areas of color have wanted us to hear for decades was that federal and state transfers to local governments had bad priorities. They drove public poor cities to routinely spend two-thirds to three-fourths of their non-school funds on public safety. For decades, most states have paid more for prisons than higher ed.
The call to divest some resources away from the police and criminal justice systems is one of the most sensible fiscal corrections in half a century. And this is all before the COVID economy began. Here we are now, state and local governments have cut nearly 1.5 million jobs just since the pandemic began. Every state now faces a budget gap. Revenue shortfalls are expected to total more than $200 billion through this fiscal year. States are weighing devastating cuts to basic services, including education and health care, and those cuts will fall hardest on communities of color. It's time to put our ears on. That's going to mean raising our state and federal taxes even as we change local governments to restructure policing and criminal justice, just as the New Deal and post-war generations did to build the shared prosperity of the boomer generation, the most upwardly mobile generation in American history. This is one of the big things that African Americans and other communities of color have asked from the rest of us reinvest to give kids and adults the skills and stability they will need to make a living. That's what local governments at their best can do. When they do not, they help seal the economic fate now so closely associated with Americans' childhood zip code. Thank you, Michelle. Um, Our next speaker is going to be Brian Lowry. He is going to talk about the psychology of race and privilege. He is a social psychologist at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. His research examines the operation of racial attitudes below the threshold of consciousness and how people perceive and make sense of inequality. Brian, please go ahead. Yeah, so I think it's important before I start to, to say um, what I mean by race. So what I mean by race is um, an, a social idea, not, not a biological reality, but a social idea loosely tied to biology. I think that's important because we should understand that race evolves, uh, and in particular, um, being white is something that's been uh, that's evolved for economic reasons, I would argue, and we can see historically um, through legal cases how that's how it's been defined and refined over time. And I think that's important because um, when I, what I have to say about privilege is not about um, individuals' innate um, person, but really about the idea of whiteness in this country. So what I really want to focus on is, is privilege. What, what is privilege? When we talk about racial, racial privilege, it's easy to, to confuse it with the idea that your life is easy, the idea that you have a, a trouble-free life. But that's not at all what we're talking about when I talk about privilege. <clears throat> when we talk about privilege, what we're talking about is the benefit that comes from being white, uh, especially in this country. The idea that your experience represents reality, um, the expectation of fair treatment, and often the advantages that come uh, that are, go beyond just merely fairness, and maybe most importantly, the presumption of innocence. And I don't mean that in just a legal sense. I mean it more in a broad moral sense, the idea that you are blame-free, that you live life as a, a good person. All those things tend to be tied up um, with um, being included in the category of white in this country. Uh, and what's in, it's important to distinguish um, privilege from prejudice. So. Often now, in many of the conversations we have, there's a focus on racism or the, um, the negative experience of not being in the white category, the disadvantages associated with being black. Um, and I want to separate that from the advantages associated with being white. So right now, as we see what's going on, it's easy to um, focus on the disadvantages some people are experiencing and want to march or um, protest against monuments. Um, but I'd argue it's much harder to address the privilege associated with being white. So in my research, what we find is that when you expose white folks, the possibility they benefit from being white 
it evokes a strong negative response. So people deny that they benefit often by pointing to hardships they experience in the world or in their lives. Once they acknowledge that they maybe have benefited or whites benefit, they want to distance themselves from the category. They say they're not really white. They're not like those other white people. And then when they, neither of those are available, they will then move towards actively trying to dismantle the disadvantages they see in society. But often this can focus on symbolic changes. And so here again, I'll point to what we see going on right now in terms of the protests, on the movement against monuments, uh, symbols of white supremacy. And I'd argue that those things actually are relatively easy. You can do those things without actually having a price to pay, without giving up much on your own side, or at least it can feel that way. So someone asked, uh, I think, Allison, about why we've had multiple uh, reconstructions. If this is a third, what happened in the first and second? My argument would be that once people recognize the cost, once white folks recognize the cost of themselves, it was harder to then continue movement forward, right? So what you see is a backlash, and that's common in this country. And so what I would point to as we think going forward, how do we know if this movement will be different, if it will be better this time? Well, it will require white folks to actively push back against the advantages they, they, they have as a function of their race. Right? And that at an individual level might mean um, promoting or sponsoring people of color. It's your job. It might mean speaking up when people engage in racist um, behavior. Um, it might mean or it should mean supporting policies that generate equality. And that would be, I mean, economic, educational, housing, criminal justice policies. And I think what the COVID pandemic will allow us is an opportunity in the very near future to see if this works, to see if this is happening. So we, as, as I assume we all hope, there will be a vaccine. One easy question is how will that vaccine be distributed? Who will get it first? I think that that will be, uh, give us really an insight into a window into how powerful the change is going to be. Thank you. Um, our final speaker is John Donahue. He is a law professor and economist. Um, at Stanford, he's well known for using empirical analysis to determine the impact of gun violence. Uh, go ahead, John. Thank you. Um, the question is uh, raised about are we safer with uh, more guns, and that's a question about private ownership of guns, uh, which, of course, influences crime. Uh, it also profoundly implicates and damages policing in America, and thus ties back to Black Lives Matter, BLM, and the calls to defund the police. We have considerably higher murder rates in the U.S. than our international competitors, in part because of our astonishingly large and largely unregulated civil, civilian arsenal of increasingly powerful weapons. That weaponry scares the hell out of the police, and coupled with the dehumanization of the other, that is a core tenet of the excessive American punitiveness in criminal justice and the often NRA-led training that encourages police to shoot quickly if they feel threatened, leads to U.S. police uh, killing citizens at dramatically higher rates, 50 to 100 times the rates of our competitor nations. Uh, in the U.S., one out of 1,000 black men and one out of 2,000 white men will be killed by the police. So Canada, Australia, Europe have made it national policy to discourage shooting anyone. In most of these countries, it is not a legitimate grounds to get a weapon to promote personal safety because that is a self-defeating goal at the national level. Uh, 
And the parallels between the BLM and the gun safety movements are striking in that they both understand it's hard to move the American public to action, but it can be done in the wake of certain catalytic events. And so whether we're talking about the pandemic itself, the killing of George Floyd, or the latest mass shooting, one consequence in each of these catalytic events has been an enormous increase in personal gun buying. When Americans are scared, gun buying soars, which is one reason why the crime drop in the Bill Clinton years when murders astonishingly fell from 25,000 to 15,000 per year, that was so damaging to the gun industry because when fear falls, uh, gun sales fall as well. Um, so an initial impact then, whether it's a BLM protest after a police killing or the aftermath of a gun ma massacre, will be an elevation in gun purchases, which will almost certainly do more harm, often of exactly the kind that the movements are trying to stop, particularly now given the stresses of the pandemic, the economy, and the aroused passions and protests. Second, there will also be an effort by the opposing forces to harness the energy of these movements in exactly the opposite direction. So Fox News and Donald Trump will seize on the looting and violence and any excesses, inaccuracies, or even imprecision of BLM or its supporters, just as the NRA launched a counterattack after Sandy Hook and Parkland that led to many more states actually enhancing gun rights, passing so-called Second Amendment sanctuaries in which it was announced that federal gun laws will not be enforced, and indeed aided the election of Trump and the appointments of Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh because of their extreme pro-gun positions. Uh, so California, New York, New Jersey got better gun laws after the mass shootings, but many more states actually deregulated and went the opposite direction, and there are now pushes to do that uh, through the Supreme Court in, in a national decision that would create a constitutional right to carry guns. Uh, so do more guns make us safer? The short answer is no. On balance, the recent surge in gun buying is harmful. There's much magical thinking about guns in private hands, which usually exaggerates the possible benefits and ignores the enormous problem of 400,000 gun thefts each year, which fulsomely arms American criminals, the burdens on police that are created by civilian weaponry, and the other harms from increased violence, accidents, and suicides that can make buying a gun the single worst decision of your life. Uh, the recent killing of Ahmad Arbery in Georgia shows one problem that gun owners usually never contemplate. There, a father and son in Georgia in January uh, followed a typical American practice of leaving a gun in an unlocked car only to have it stolen, which then motivated them a month later to chase an innocent man down. And when they finally caught him, they thought it was okay to shoot him because he resisted someone coming at him with a gun. As a result, an innocent man is dead and they will end up in jail. Uh, there are other iconic images over the last few months. In May, uh, there was a Facebook ad by a Republican candidate for Congress in which he repeatedly fires his assault weapon and says, whether it's looting hordes from Atlanta or a tyrannical government in Washington, there are few better liberty machines than an AR-15. He ends up saying he will give away an AR-15 to one lucky supporter, but you have to be 17 years old to qualify. So the pugnacious stupidity that fuels the modern gun movement and sadly infects many politicians and even federal judges 
uh, sends out a very unwise message that tells citizens an AR-15 in their hands will conceivably pay, play a positive role in, in dealing with the government. It's, it's, it's simply a fantasy and a dangerous one. And you can see this with the uh, protest against Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan, where armed individuals went into the state house holding signs calling her a tyrant and she should get the rope, screaming down at the lawmakers from the Senate gallery. Uh, and I'm sure you saw the St. Louis couple who took up arms to defend their home. So the bottom line is that American exceptionalism doesn't have to mean exceptionally high rates of killing by police and others, but we do need to promote wise measures that reduce crime, eliminate government and personal actions that divide and damage our country, and redirect our thinking to policies that see the humanity and promote the well-being of all Americans. Thank you. Thanks, John. All right, we're now in the question and answer period. I encourage all of our speakers to jump in at any time. Um, my first question is for John. I just finished. Um, John, you support stronger gun laws. Um, I had a book up recently with New York Times journalist Emily Bazelon, and she spoke about opposing gun laws because it results in more arrests and felony convictions of African Americans. How do you feel about the fact that this uh, will have potentially racial bias? You know, I, I, I do think that... These are always issues about concerns, but uh, the bottom line is uh, when you look at the situation in the U.S. with the growing problem of mass shootings, uh, we actually had an assault weapon ban in place, which did somewhat restrain the level of mass shootings. And I am concerned uh, more about what is going to be happening in the future with the rise of mass shootings and more Armand Arbery type cases than I am about the uh, the issue on that personal uh, dimension. But it, it's obviously a concern, and I do think we need uh, a massive restructuring of our criminal justice system. I wrote a paper 20 years ago called Allocating Resources in the Battle Against Crime, and I do think uh, uh, we do need a lot more reallocation. I don't, I'm not sure that we need reallocation away from uh, the police as much as away from incarceration and, uh, you know, beginning social spending uh, in a way to reduce unwanted pregnancies, promote the, the welfare of, of children, uh, and, you know, obviously help families uh, uh, be able to support their children in a, in a more effective and, uh, um, you know, socially useful way. We also have a substantial amount of black-on-black -black crime. I live in Chicago, uh, where this is a particular problem. Um, any suggestions on public policies to reduce that? Yeah, Chicago is a disaster. Uh, uh, but, you know, uh, a lot of times the NRA wants to look at Chicago because it, they think of it as being a, a city in which gun rights are restricted, and that's why it, it, is, it is in bad shape. The city that restricts guns more than any other place is New York, which is doing very well. New York has a murder rate of 3.8 per 100,000, while Chicago is like 28 per 100,000. So Chicago is doing a lot worse. But the city that has the greatest gun rights is St. Louis, and they have a murder rate of 68 per 100,000. So the idea that, uh, you know, private gun ownership is going to get you out of a crime problem is pure fantasy. Look to New York to see what helps. The South Bronx, where I grew up, is one of the poorest areas in the United States. 
and has a much lower crime rate than uh, Oakland or Chicago. Um, so wise policies can reduce crime. Um, you know, Mayor Bloomberg was absolutely right. You, you've got to get rid of the guns. He was wrong in supporting uh, uh, stop and frisk, but New York has now gotten rid of stop and frisk, and it has retained the low crime rate. So there, there are good things that can be done, but you need to deal with the police union problem. You need to get uh, police who have a humane attitude towards the people that they serve. I don't know if anyone knows the, the name of Daniel Shaver. He's a white American who was gunned down in one of the most egregious police killings. And part of the problem with American police is they, they have a very dehumanized attitude towards the people that they're supposed to protect and serve. As long as you have that attitude, the police and the public will not be in communion as they should be and need to be to have crime reduced to the appropriate level. But we also need to do uh, so many of the things that New York has done a better job than Chicago to, uh, to promote the, the well-being of all of its citizens. Um, my next qu question is for Brian. Brian, you mentioned that one great test will be how the vaccine will be distributed, um, hopefully soon for COVID. Uh, how do you see, what are your expectations for how it will be distributed? I imagine we'll be giving it primarily first to the elderly and first responders, doctors and nurses. Um, how should we distribute the vaccine to be consistent with your values? Um, I think what we should be doing is um, essential workers, right? So you think about who's looking at the grocery stores, who's delivering food and um, other necessities, and those people are primarily brown and black people, which is um, at least an argument for one reason why it's, um, the, um, it's so prevalent in those communities. I fear that really what will happen is after we um, give it to nurses and doctors, then we'll do it based on market forces, which will leave out communities that are serving us and, in fact, likely increase the, or, um, the time that we'll have to deal with disease in the community. You also spoke about um, white folks pushing back against their advantages. Um, Sierra Vance had that book about hillbilly uh, elegy, um, about, I'll call it, poor whites feeling taken advantage of by the process as well. What kind of comments do you have for um, poor uh, working-class whites? Um, I would ask them to compare themselves to poor working-class black folks. I would say that the issue is not how good is your life versus how good do you think it should be. When we talk about privilege, what we're talking about is the comparison between people who are included in the social category of white versus people who aren't. And often in this country, when we talk about working class, it's as if um, only white folks are in the working class. There are many black and brown folks who are obviously in the working class and poor, and I'd argue that they uh, will struggle in a way that um, the white class and poor won't. And, uh, and to one example of points that is the difference in the response to the opioid epidemic, which primarily ravaged uh, working class uh, and rural white communities versus the way we dealt with the crack epidemic, which ravaged working class and poor black and brown communities. Mm -hmm. uh, moving on to Michelle, um, you talk about budget problems in local governments, um, one of the major points that the protesters have been asking is to defund the police or substantially reduce police budgets. Um, what would your recommendations for budgetary 
uh, solutions in this, I'll call it budget crisis coming out of COVID. Should we move out of money out of police and into education and health care? And if so, by what kind of levels? Uh, thanks, Larry. Um, I've uh, studied areas of the police divestment really closely. We have actually a lot of experiments with what it looks like to defund the police and emergency dispatch through 911. Um, and so when you look closely at what that really means, you see a really heavy dependence on private substitutes for it. And I can tell you that when you do that kind of divestment on the cheap, so in other words, just kind of leave it to volunteers to work out, you get um, this form of kind of DIY um, armed neighborhood watch that you can find all over the Rust Belt and California's Rust Belt and um, a lot of rural America. Um, and there are real dangers to armed substitutes for the public police. That takes nothing away from the danger of American policing right now. It's just to say that a divestment without a reinvestment in alternatives to policing has its own hazards. So I think, um, to me, the divestment calls are really about um, shifting resources towards alternatives for policing when it comes to the vast, vast majority of what police dispatch for, which is domestic disturbances and social services. Um, I live in San Francisco. A huge part of what public safety personnel do in a city like this is respond to homelessness and property crimes and other kinds of small um, incidents that are considered by police to be sort of cold cases. Um, so there's a lot of work to do to sort of pull those responsibilities away from police, which are by far the most expensive public workers, and toward other kinds of social workers um, who could, um, I think there's good evidence to suggest that they can do some of that work more effectively, and they're actually more comfortable doing that work. Um, so that's what I would say. I can't resist um, commenting quickly, Larry, on your smart question um, uh, to John about uh, the homicide rate in Chicago. And I just want to say briefly, um, I haven't studied Chicago closely, but I have closely studied another city, Stockton, which is one of these breakaway cities with a homicide rate that defies the larger um, reduction in violent crime nationwide. And the overwhelming hypothesis among community advocates in Stockton is that the 20-somethings in the city now are the children of the massive homicide spike in the 90s, and that there's a transference of the experience of the trauma of witnessing and of losing parents, of being orphaned by violence and incarceration, that that 90s generation experienced that is showing up on the city streets in the form of violence today. It all comes under the heading like Sammy Nunez, one of my heroes in social services in Stockton, says, hurt people hurt people. And I think that captures so much of the work we have to do on reinvestment outside of policing is really repairing some of that really deep um, scar tissue from eras of violence that have gone unchecked and ignored by the larger electorates. Just expanding on one of the things you talked about, uh, about the role of, of police in society and as relates to social services. Uh, Forrest Stewart uh, wrote a book about uh, Los Angeles and how the police um, work together with social services. So if they find um, a drunk pissing on the street, they offer him a choice. He can go to jail or he can go to AA. Uh, and then they drop uh, the fellow in front of the AA office. Um, and so it's not that they're 
they're not a social service, but they are the enforcement mechanism for social services. How do you feel about that role for police? I think there's some truth to that. Um, one of the problems with um, really rapid fire downsizing of um, the police all at once, at least as it's been practiced in recent you know, decades, is that the police are the last thing to get any change or cut. And so by the time you're cutting police, you have already denuded all of those other resources. So you've denuded the drug treatment centers, you've, you've stripped away the residential um, facilities, the so-called drunk tanks, but in the world of the opioid crisis, they're much more you know, serious residential treatment facilities. Um, there are all these other parts of the social service um, safety net that are already gone. And so you're about right, the police are dropping you off at an AA meeting. And I guess that is really not effective. <laughs> So, I mean, it, there's so much in drug treatment, we can't go into it here, but there's so much about the path to real um, reform for people, and it's, um, it's you know, and entering a voluntary group in the midst of a really serious opioid addiction that is so physiologically um, devastating um, is just uh, not um, the typical way that people... So anyway, I think the problem is that we... We have um, we've left kind of only policing standing in these vast landscapes of disinvestment, and so there's kind of nowhere where to take somebody. So you put them in jail for as long as you can afford to put them in jail, and then you just let them out, and that's the that's what society did for them was leave them with a record and sort of no rehabilitation. Okay, we have, we have a number of questions coming in uh, that are, want to look more toward uh, solutions here. And I, I guess this is for, for Claude and Condi, but also anyone else. Uh, Claude, you talked about uh, individual change, if you will, sort of building trust among individuals as the focus of change. Uh, and Condi, you refer to institutions, uh, and we might think they're both government institutions on the one hand, state, federal, local, but then also non-governmental institutions uh, of a, of a of a variety of sorts. Uh, so one of the questions we have coming in is where should we look to or how should we think about this process of social change? Is it really going to occur primarily on the retail level, you know, one person at a time? Or are we looking to federal government or is it somewhere in between? Well, uh, maybe I'll, I'll start. Um, this is Condi. Look, I think it has to be at all levels. And um, I applaud and want to be part of the movement to deal with institutional change, uh, structural racism. I, I was very impressed by some of the things that were discussed, for instance, about issues uh, about voting uh, that should really not be beyond the realm of human, uh, human creativity to solve. So uh, there are a number of issues that need to be solved at the, let's say, wholesale level. But I'm also a great believer that while we're doing that, we should sacrifice whole generations of people uh, who, if they were given um, proper education, for instance, um, with the ability to actually uh, use the, the educational system in a way that is going to benefit them, that they might, uh, they might prosper. And um, I'm a big advocate of school uh, reform. Uh, I'm an advocate of something, by the way, that has not been particularly popular in civil rights communities. I'm an advocate of school choice. Uh, of charter schools, 
of, of vouchers if necessary. And I'll tell you why. Our, you want to talk about uh, a structural problem. Our K-12 education system is an opt-out system right now. If you are of means, regardless of your color, by the way, if you are of means, you will move to a district where the schools are good. So that's why houses are expensive in the Oakland Hills or in Palo Alto or in Los Altos or in Fairfax County outside of D.C. or in, in, uh, in Shelby County, Alabama, where my family lives. If you're really wealthy, you'll send your kids to private schools. So who do you think stuck in failing neighborhood schools? Poor kids. And a lot of those are minority kids. And so every time I see one of those editorials in the Washington Post uh, from somebody saying, well, vouchers will destroy the public schools or our charter schools or destroying the public schools. And I don't mean to, to suggest all charter schools are good. Not all of them are, but some of them are. And you see what happens when there's a lottery to get a voucher or to get into a charter school. The lines are around the block, and they're mostly poor parents and minority parents. So when you write that editorial that says that if we do this, we're going to destroy the public schools, Write the editorial and send your kids to school in Anacostia. Don't send your kids to Sidwell Friends and write that editorial. So I think there's, some, there's, a, there's a structural problem in our education system. And uh, to me, it's uh, the most important uh, civil right for an individual kid to have a chance. Okay, so let me let me note for yes. our listeners that, that we're going to return to education in a couple of weeks and look at both primary and secondary education and higher education. Uh, anyone else want to, to weigh well, in on yeah. that question? I would, yeah, I would jump in. This is Claude. I think I'm unmuted. Yeah, um, I, I would I would say my res- remarks are targeted how at how to make schools more effective with minority students and low income students uh, in general. I I don't think. Our institutions really weren't, as they evolved, designed to deal with some of the challenges of, of poverty and disadvantage that they currently have to deal with. And I don't think the institutions themselves have developed the pedagogies that will scaffold these kids into a, a much more solid, constructive relationship to, to school. So I, I'm, as a psychologist, a social psychologist, focused on what do they have to do to make that work better? Uh, as a as a general question, uh, not so much a question about policies or or uh, charter schools or so on. Although I do believe that at a, at a base, uh, why is it that school funding is so tracked to uh, higher income communities? <laughs> uh, and you know our real estate system, everything is so hinged on that 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 really does need some serious examination. A lot of what we come up with are often patches for uh, a more fundamentally misguided funding structure and teacher assignment structure for that matter. But uh, the, the question of, of more immediate uh, that I can be more useful for is what does the school have to do? And I think it has to recognize the, the, uh, the experience of, of these kids coming into school and to address it, to be more forthcoming, to learn how to handle that better. And some of the things I was, points I was trying to make in my, my remarks are, are aimed at doing that. And I won't elaborate more at this point, but that's the thrust of where that work goes. But uh, let me try a question um, for Nate. Um, Nate, you mentioned that, that we have an exogenous shock in the voting process. Um, 
and that we're going to be going towards mail-ins, which is so unusual uh, and require 100 million people to change their method of voting. Um, do you suspect that this will negatively impact the elderly much more than the young uh, who don't have a trend of having voted before or the elderly who have difficulty changing their processes? Actually, I think what you'll see is that older voters are going to be more likely uh, to have their vote counted than younger voters. That's what we're seeing in the primaries, um, partly because uh, older voters are more likely to have a stable address, and so the vote-by-mail uh, shift is going to favor them. Um, and so, the, and, and, and those who are more familiar with the voting system are going to be more likely uh, to be able to navigate the sort of hurdles that mail balloting uh, poses. Now, the one wrinkle in that is that now we're seeing obviously an ideological shift in, in vote by mail, which really wasn't there before. And so it, it remains an open question whether uh, the president's tweets are then going to actually lead older voters to be less likely to vote by mail uh, because they're, they're disproportionately his supporters. Now, I, I think, though, what we see in the primaries is that um, uh, younger voters are more likely to vote in polling places, first-time voters are more likely to vote in polling places, and racial minority voters are more likely to vote uh, in polling places. And so I, I think that um, at least when it comes to the mail balloting, that we'll, we'll probably see the normal trends uh, going forward. Since, since most states in their move to mail balloting are, are really just allowing for uh, no-excuse absentee voting, uh, and that's something that is historically going to have more older voters than younger voters. And how screwed up were the primaries? Um, some states were extremely screwed up. Uh, and, and those who are interested, you can go to our website, healthyelections.org, where we're doing postmortems on all of the primaries. This is the Stanford-MIT Voting Project, uh, Healthy Elections Project I mentioned before. But what is interesting, and this is what I want to impress, uh, while generally the lens through which we view voting problems is the partisan lens, voter suppression, and the like, you saw voting problems happening in cities where there's not a partisan explanation for this. So Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., Atlanta, and the like, the problems in the primaries were not a result of the kind of familiar uh, things we see in voting. Um, and it's really this misallocation of resources uh, that's really afflicting these uh, cities um, because they're facing just unprecedented uh, challenges. And so the problems that we saw in the primaries were um, uh, that massive shift to mail ballots so that there were tens of thousands of people in, in different states who didn't receive their ballots, many of which then uh, cast their ballots late. You could see in places like Philadelphia and Pennsylvania generally um, that it took weeks to um, finally figure out what the vote totals were. We're seeing that even in New York right now with the primary election. Uh, and then in the polling places that did remain, you had this massive shortage of poll workers. Even places like Anchorage, Alaska, the head of elections there said she lost 95% of her normal poll workers who show up uh, because they were afraid of uh, catching COVID. And so this really is an all-hands-on-deck approach that we need to solve this problem of poll workers, polling places, and, and the things that we need to run the election. Do you think um, results will be substantially delayed uh, versus historics in terms of yes. the one? No, no, doubt, no doubt about it. Um, well, I mean, I should, I, should, I should start with what's known as the election administrator's prayer, which is, oh, God, whatever happens, please don't let it be close. Uh, because <laughs> uh, if there is a close election, then all of the, the problems that I was talking about then be seen as, as outcome determinative. Um, but, um, you know, 
we will have close to 70 million people will probably be casting their votes by mail this time. Um, that will, uh, I mean, maybe 60 to 70 million who will be casting it by mail. Um, and the, the jurisdictions simply are not prepared for it. And we saw this in the primaries um, because every mail ballot needs to be matched against the signatures that are on file. Uh, and then they have to be uh, opened and counted and the like. And um, we're running into the same supply chain problems that we see in dealing with COVID generally, just as we had problems with uh, ventilators and face masks. We're running into problems with the um, mail ballot sorters and scanners and the other kind of equipment you need for mail balloting that could make it do, do, be done quicker. And so, you know, you're going to have uh, sort of brute force techniques where they're going to try to bring in lots of people to open up the mail. And so you should expect that, um, you know, votes won't be finalized for at least a week afterwards. Now, if, like I said, if it's not a close election, we may end up seeing uh, the states being called earlier on. Um, but if it is remotely close, then it's going to um, lead to a, at least a week before we know the results. Thank you. Um, some questions for Secretary Rice. Um, first question, um, during the JFK administration, when there was civil war, uh, civil rights discussions and, and movements, uh, it was during the Cold War, and the United States was desperate to get the non-aligned nations to sympathize with the United States. Um, as we've gone through the current turbulence related to George Floyd, how does that affect um, American foreign policy in terms of coming out uh, looking like the good guys? Well, it's a really good question because uh, one thing you have to understand about when people look at the United States from the outside, they often have uh, an exaggerated view of the United States one way or another. Either the United States is, you know, the streets paved with gold and should never have these problems, or the United States is the devil incarnate, and so nobody's surprised. It's rare that you get uh, the kind of view that I try to explain as secretary, which is that the United States, uh, these are human institutions. We have a long, tragic history uh, with, with uh, slavery. It was our birth defect as a country, and so it's a visceral, very deep uh, defect. And that ours has been um, a, a, a history of trying fit, fitfully, really, to overcome uh, that birth defect. And we've made some progress, but we still have a very, very long way to go. So when you get something like the George Floyd situation, people show it, see it through uh, their own prism. My view is that this time, um, actually, it's had a positive effect in that it shows Americans uh, in the streets who are uh, appalled by this and determined to change, and as someone said, in a multiracial uh, way. It's not just blacks going out in the streets on their own behalf. I often say to people, you know, when I was a kid growing up in Birmingham, if a black man had been killed by a white policeman, it wouldn't have been a footnote in the news story. So I think the response has actually been a positive in terms of the uh, image of the United States. Uh, it would be helpful, um, as I said earlier, if um, our allies and others would not just comment about the United States, but would actually look at their own situations, look at themselves in the mirror, because actually um, race and ethnicity around the world isn't very well handled in any democracy that I can think of. But in What do you think of uh, yeah. Nate's comments about if we do have a close election, um, yeah. things are going to be very delayed? How can our leaders 
preemptively deal with um, a close election where it's uncertain who won and the chaos that will erupt and to try to re remain calm while we figure this thing out. I remember in, in reading your biography, you discussed what it was like um, during the Bush versus Gore experience. Um, what preemptively can, do you think we can do? Well, I'm worried uh, this time around because we're so much more polarized than we were even in 2000. And what helped there was that both Bush and Gore gave very strong signals that they were going to let the process go, uh, you know, process go through, and they would accept the outcome of the process. So I think the thing that we can do preemptively is to say to those who are going to be a part of the electoral process this time, we need your pledge that uh, you are not going to exploit the circumstances of a close election, uh, that you will let the process play out, and uh, that you're not going to try to stir your, um, your proponents uh, into the streets. And I think we really need to exact that, uh, that pledge and make clear to people who are in this process that we are concerned about it, because I am concerned about it. In your, your, your talk, you mentioned about the roles that institutions can play in helping out uh, deal with race. What, um, what are your thoughts about non-governmental institutions in the role to help deal with systematic racism, like the church or academic institutions that can help build confidence in our society? Yeah, it's everything from academic institutions uh, where universities, um, and we can go to K-12, but let's say universities, for instance, and really have healthy conversations about what we're facing and what it means. But they have to be conversations that are not recriminatory. There have to be conversations in which everybody can come to the table feeling a level playing field, or it's just not going to work. And uh, I, I think if we can uh, be willing to listen to views that may not be exactly our own in universities, that's going to help. And by the way, we're, we're not served well by social media in this regard because everybody goes to their corner, right? You know, I listen to my bloggers, my cable news channels, my aggregators, my websites, and I never encounter anybody who thinks differently. And so when I encounter somebody who thinks differently, I think they're stupid or venal. So we somehow got to get over that if we're going to have these conversations. The other institutions that can help you mentioned uh, faith-based institutions, they can certainly help. But I wouldn't underestimate the impact of um, non-governmental civil society. Uh, places like Boys and Girls Clubs, where you have youth of all colors getting together and getting a chance to understand each other when they're young. So I think the more that we can do with people when they're young, when they don't have their attitudes formed so strongly about race, uh, the better off we're going to be. Let me extend that, Connie, and this is a, a question open for all the, the participants, is that uh, one of the things we haven't really talked about much in this conversation, even as we have talked about people coming together across racial lines, is the issue of segregation. Uh, racial segregation in particular uh, in American society. There was a time when that was at the forefront of our national agenda. Uh, now, not so much. Can we hope to move forward as a nation and solve some of these controversies if we uh, don't address the issue of residential racial segregation? Well, could I just mention two things in that real quickly, because I've talked a lot and let my, my fellow panelists speak. Somebody said the most segregated hour in America is 11 o'clock on Sunday, um, where churches are really segregated because people want a different kind of experience. 
But I do think that efforts to bridge some of that um, in faith-based institutions could be quite important. My dad was a minister in Birmingham, and he and the, believe it or not, in like 1960-61, he and the white minister of Shades Valley Presbyterian decided to bring their youth fellowships together. That's in Birmingham in 1961. And, uh, you know, it worked pretty well. So I think there needs to be uh, more of that. As to, uh, there are a lot of reasons for uh, residential segregation. Um, this is something I think that is worth studying. Uh, one thing that we have to do is we have to be open as academics to actually taking a fresh look at some of these questions letting the data tell us what's really going on here, and then drawing implications. And I think in some of these instances, we really don't know the answers very well. A question okay. for Claude Steele. Um, you mentioned challenges when you have a, uh, a teacher conference yep. uh, between a white teacher and a black parent, but, uh, and how to properly build trust. Um, there, there are all sorts of relations between the races. Um, it could be job interviews. It could be jo job um, feedback. What sort of ways can uh, we build trust in a way that is uh, constructive so that the criticism can be uh, used properly? Yeah, I think it's a good example. I, I think a lot of, the, uh, of an institution's capacity to build trust for a conversation like that, a parent-teacher conversation, uh, has to happen before the conversation begins. There has to be signals from the school and environment that um, uh, that shows some kind of sensitivity for the position that each of those people are going to be in when they when when they have that conversation, and it has to explicitly work through that. We're talking a lot about institutions. Uh, I don't think in our institutions have taken enough responsibility on themselves to. Uh, reach out to, I guess, for lack of a, a better term, uh, these groups, disadvantaged groups, low-income groups, minority groups, and, and to develop concrete ways of scaffolding them into the mainstream of, of the institution. They haven't seen that as the principal work of institutions, K-12 schools, universities, churches. Uh, I, I, I could go on. And, and I think in the future, if there is a, a revolution of uh, a, a foot. I would like to see that be a big component of it because I think we can't we can't just assume that people who are uh, enduring an awful lot of disadvantage uh, can themselves uh, rise to uh, uh, the the effort it takes to persistently succeed in institutions that really have no outreach to them. I think there's a responsibility on the part of our institutions to have that kind of an awareness of the challenge that we have as an American society, that we, that is what the American experiment is, is, is about in a, in, a, in a major way. And I, so I, I hope some of the waking up that happens is at the institutional level. Uh, I, I could go on in that, in that vein, but, it, but, but that's the largest thing I, I'd want to point to is that, that responsibility. When I read your book about um, Whistling Vivaldi, what, I, what you emphasized was the corrosive aspects of stereotypes. Um, you mentioned it with regards to uh, African Americans in schools. You talked about it with women and, and math. Um, do you notice that if um, a child is, let's say, a, a woman is at a, a woman's college, does she perform better in math than otherwise? Um, what sort of 
ways can we undermine these negative stereotypes towards education? Uh, what, this, what you just described is uh, an empirical relationship. Women who go into STEM fields uh, disproportionately comes from women's colleges. African Americans who go into STEM fields and medical profession and like come disproportionately from from uh, uh, historically black uh, colleges and universities. So there there is some um, uh, fact there that uh, the. the Dealing with diversity in those situations and the threat that's posed by just the inherent, the inherent stereotypes that are, that are in the air. These are not necessarily, uh, I'm not pointing to prejudice people per se. I'm not excusing that, but I'm not pointing to that as the mechanism. What we have to understand is that uh, these stereotypes are just part of our, uh, our, the water we swim in in American society. And so that is a that can be a, a barrier to let's say a woman succeeding in a field is a is the sort of constant worry. Well, am I going to be seen this way? Are they going to really invest in my abilities in this area, or am I going to be seen as marginal? And if I'm going to have to deal with all that, then maybe I should put my energies in a different place. That's uh, what the experience uh, uh, would 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 be like. So what has to happen, I think, are uh, signals that that is not how they're seen. I. I tried to illustrate that in that kind of feedback where, um, look, we use high standards, that's demanding, so I'm not seeing you in terms of the stereotype. I believe you can do it. I, this, is, this is some information that may help you, you do it. I'll support you. Here's a clear path forward. Those simple things, trust is something that I think is it's a game play on the ground. Show up, support, listen, help people in real concrete ways to move forward in their lives. And I think trust gets built that way. And when that happens, you can see uh, our, our research now has accumulated over uh, 20 years or so, a lot of evidence that that kind of approach can really make a difference in outcomes for, uh, for groups and for the institutions themselves. Okay, that's great. I wanted to raise a broader question for the, for the group. Uh, this is an issue that, that's come up as a discussion about George Floyd has broadened out beyond the context of policing. Uh, a number of people have uh, renewed calls for reparations uh, for African Americans. Uh, uh, these are claims that have gone back all the way to, to the end of slavery uh, and have been raised by John Conyers uh, for many years uh, while he was in government. And now they're being bandied about uh, in many media. Is a call for reparations, is that, a, is that a distraction or is that helpful in thinking about the work that we have ahead? Any takers on that? Well, you know, I'm going to point to some of the things that Brian said because I, I think they're almost more to the point because I do believe that uh, there does have to be some redistributive thinking with regard to uh, American society. I don't know if, if it's going to take the form of reparations per se, but when I think about school funding, patterns of school funding, patterns of teacher assignments, things that affect a person's opportunity to uh, step into the mainstream uh, of society, we, we have not really distributed resources in a way that would help minorities and poor people step into the mainstream. That and some of that thinking is, is redistributed. I, I would be most impressed if I see people focusing on that level of, of policy to open up the opportunity structures at the bottom of society, for lack of a better term. Um, now, whether 
and I, I'm afraid those things are more important than, you know, a, a cash transfer <laughs> of some sort. That might be that might be helpful. But uh, <laughs> I, I really, I, I really, I really think we need to look at, at how to, to as I was saying, to use the term scaffolding people in, giving them the stepping stones to bring them into society. Other societies do try to do that in a better. Uh, way. I'm not talking about an absolute welfare state here, but I'm, I'm talking about shoring up the, the structure of our institutions so that they're more effective at that. Yeah, if I could just jump in as well, uh, if, you look, if you just plot the child poverty rates across uh, OECD countries, the United States stands out enormously as having the highest child poverty rates, and no other OECD nation is close. And we also are at the bottom in terms of expenditures to reduce poverty rates through tax and transfer programs among OECD countries. So that would be obviously one important uh, step that could be taken. But I do think across the board, um, you know, there, there used to be a good government wing of the Republican Party, and now uh, the sort of anti-government wing has taken ascendancy. And so everything from family planning uh, measures are underfunded. Uh, as I mentioned, child poverty is, is underfunded. And even when you look in the uh, things like uh, drug policy, uh, I think we're, we're often taken in the wrong way by the excessively punitive nature of uh, drug policy and, and even in the death penalty arena. Uh, you know, we spend billions on the death penalty. It gives us no value, has a strong racial bias to it. Uh, and yet we only clear about 25 to 40 percent of murders in inner cities. So I would say take the billions spent on uh, the death penalty uh, and, and move them into measures that actually uh, reduce crime or reduce child poverty, uh, and the long-term benefits will be far greater. Unfortunately, there's a lot of political payoff for politicians for stopping things like family planning programs and promoting the death penalty, even though they're, they're not effective strategies. Could I just add, make a point here? Because I may be the only Republican on this call. I don't know, but let me make a point. We don't. We didn't. We we did not require disclosure of political affiliation no, for well, the purpose of this to, call. Uh, <laughs> look, I do think this is a bipartisan failure. Um, a lot of the issues that we're dealing with, um, and one of the things that we need to do is we need to go back and we need to look at some of the approaches that we've had over the years and to ask, and this is really a role for, for academics as well, to ask in a clear-headed way, why have some of the uh, efforts that we made uh, failed? Uh, so, for instance, um, I really do think one talks about child poverty or one talks about early childhood education we know that some of the programs that came out of the 60s actually didn't have the intended effect. Now, that doesn't mean that they were the, that, that people were not trying to do the right thing, but we really need to take a hard look at how are we going to approach child poverty, how are we going to approach early childhood education, how much of it is federal, how much of it is at the state level, how much of it is even at the local level. We have 37 different federal job retraining programs. Nobody thinks any of them work. And so before we just say, well, we stopped doing some of these things, I think it's really important that we go back, we take a fresh look at uh, some of the efforts that we've had in the past and can we uh, improve them? Uh, can we, you know, we actually did get criminal justice reform very recently on a bipartisan basis 
in ways that are not uh, complete, but that I think if people have moved us forward. So uh, we're going to do better, I think, if we admit that there's been a lot of failure across the entire system on this. Well, I would, I would agree with that. I do think it's a bipartisan uh, failure. Uh, but, but I would say there is pretty clear evidence that early childhood education efforts uh, do uh, have long-term, far-reaching benefits for the children I, I, who But for instance, Head Start, Head Start has a mixed... A mixed uh, Head Start does. Yeah, uh, but, so I really yeah, meant specific I, programs about early childhood. Yeah. But, but I do think that that is the point. Uh, uh, enriched preschool programs have enormous benefit, but once you've got to get through the anti-government maze of political action, you're going to get Head Start. You're not going to get the Perry Preschool. And that's the problem. We starve the, uh, yeah. the government sector where it could be beneficial and then point to the failures of the underfunded government sector. And this is true for, uh, you know, there are police departments where police get paid $10 an hour. You're not going to get good police at $10 an hour. Uh, yeah. And the same is true for uh, preschool enrichment. The same is true for uh, public school teachers in the inner city. You really need to do it right. Take the good government measures that many other OECD countries take uh, and, and resist the sort of anti-government measures that uh, have been effective for the Republican Party in seizing power, but have been so poor in terms of governing with good results. Could I just say a couple things? Look, this is why we need to have this conversation. First of all, it's not always anti-government. Sometimes it is a view that these are issues that are better dealt with at the state level. So let's just leave that. The second thing is I look really closely at where those OECD countries, how well minority kids do. Um, not very well in a lot of, first of all, some of them are very homogeneous, right? So if you're talking about Norway, Sweden, Finland, you ever been there? Those are really homogeneous countries. If you talk about OECD countries that have a more multi-ethnic look, let's take, for instance, Great Britain. Ask yourself how well they do in some of those wards that are inhabited by, uh, by uh, African, West African immigrants. So we really need to be careful in how we describe what OECD countries are doing. Yeah, but, but child poverty rates in Germany are 8.4%, France 8.5%, uh, United States 23%. Germany so, is very homogeneous except for the Turkish population, which is a death. Well, this is, you know, this is a world I do know very well, is the rest of the world. And um, actually, if you get beneath the numbers and start to ask about the, if you, you take a denominator of a country that's extremely homogeneous, you're going to get different results. If you now take a denominator of the, the minorities within that country, I'll bet you those child poverty rates look different. Yeah, sure, that, that's true. But overall, you, you mentioned England. The poverty rate in England is half the, pop, the child poverty rate in the United States, and they have a very large minority population. This is what I'm asking you to do is to ask, it, but it's still a much more homogenous country than the United States is, and smaller, by the way. So I'm, I'm not making an argument that you shouldn't look at those things. I'm just saying you've got to get several levels below the level at which you're, you're talking right now in, other, in order to understand why OECD rates may look a particular way. It's just a social science 
social science comment. Mm-hmm. Wow. And and and, and what is it? Well, let me let me. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Rick, I just want to go back. I just want to bring it back to the question about reparations, because in all these um, on all these dimensions, what you see is as uh, Condi is pointing out that the disparities, the, the negative side disparities, fall most heavily on minority communities and often on black um, black Americans. And so I think that points to the need for, as Claude said, some redistribution. And we can have a conversation or argument about how other countries fare in terms of diversity, but we also present ourselves in a different light. And I would say that we've fallen far short of that and that redistribution is a more powerful way to generate the kind of country that we claim to have or, or at least want um, than focusing on the psychology to try to get us to the economic and uh, material equity or equality. Okay, and, 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 and Brian, if, if, if you were in charge, what, what sorts of forms of redistribution would you give priority to? Yeah, I, that's a good question. I, I, I was Claude, not so, not so sure about like cash transfers. That's complicated. Um, maybe that's, that's useful. I would think about how we, um, how we pay for early education, right? So thinking about the amount of emphasis we place on existing wealth, I would think about um, uh, estate taxation, right? So inheritance, how we reduce, how we maybe um, tax at a higher rate, and think about how we distribute that differently. Um, I would think about healthcare. Um, this is not necessarily redistribution, but if we had universal healthcare, I think that would uh, change some of the outcome for the black community. So I think there are a number of places you can look, um, and the distribution redistribution doesn't have to be um, a direct transfer to the black community. It could be something that lifts. The all of society. Okay, and Michelle, are you still on the line? The yeah, I'm here. So I just wanted to 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 take that question back to you. What what is it that we need to do for the poorest, segregated cities, the one where the ones where government has has almost been has has withered away? Uh, What sorts of fixes would work there? I, I. The recent comments have just been amazing for capturing the kind of reinvestment agenda that's needed in social mobility. And we have a generation of policy reforms in the, um, especially in the post-war period, that really built out social mobility through education, through quality of life in neighborhoods, which showed up as wealth in the form of private property values, um, through investment in parks and open space and recreational programs and things for kids need across childhood. And um, so I think we have models of that. And the problem with with that history, of course, as any historian in this group um, uh, in the larger audience could tell us is that um, that period of investment in people and in their neighborhoods primarily skipped African-American people, African-American neighborhoods, and what in some cases became African-American cities. And it also skipped um, any refugees and immigrants who arrived sort of in the more recent decades following that. So it 
skipped um, the massive uh, waves of, of in, inbound migration, for instance, in California that followed the Vietnam War. So those are generations and communities of people that just didn't enjoy that investment in their kids and in their educations. And so I think there's a lot to learn from that generation. But I'm not a historian, and so I focus on what we can learn from people today. And when you go out into these cities today and you listen to people and sort of what is working in their communities, there's all kinds of model models for reinvestment in adult ed, in childhood ed, in all the things we need outside of schools and police. And um, so, the, I mean, I'm writing a whole book about all that stuff. So there's a lot out there. It's not that we don't know what to do. It's that there's been no political will to do it. And I think a lot of the failure of that political will has been racialized views of how the communities got in trouble in the first place. I think some of those racialized views have been applied to very low-income white rural areas as well, and although in a different way, in a way that's um, distinct, that's a larger conversation. But um, anyway, we have all these theories about how they got where they got, and I think because we are so busy blaming communities for why they're in trouble now, and um, we've sort of failed to see all of the massive intergenerational disinvestment in their kids and their communities um, that has brought them here. Um, yeah. All right, maybe it's time for um, our conclusion where we ask each speaker to say something optimistic. Uh, historically, on these COVID calls, um, things get pretty negative pretty quickly, but there's still a lot to look on the <laughs> optimistic side. Um, Claude, maybe I could start with you. What do you see out there that you're optimistic about? Sorry to blindside you. Right. right. <laughs> Claude, are you there? Hello. Uh, I'm sorry. I was let, let me, Can you hear me now? Larry, Larry, yeah, Larry, Larry, let me jump in. I want to I uh, modify our usual uh, optimism question here, um, hey, if we could. And so how is it? One of oh, the, the, I, the I was all ready issues, to go, man. Well, ho hold on now. Well you, well, you can fold it in. But one, one okay. of the big issues that's been floating above this conversation, though, is how much change do we need to make in, Samar in American society to to uh, manage, uh, effectively resolve our racial crisis. Uh, should we think of the challenges that confront us arising out of George Floyd and those protests as a kind of a discrete problem where we can make some, you know, small fixes to different institutions, or should we see this as a broader effort of, of reconstruction and might require some rethinking of basic notions of governmental responsibility, the operation of the free market, the way we do capitalism? I guess I'd say both. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I do think we need that larger perspective, but I also, and maybe this is the psychologist in me, I think there are things we can do in our lives. Uh, and, and, for example, taking this redistributive question that's come up more seriously. Uh, and, and as a part of what, our, uh, what it means to be a good American, it's not just good enough to say, I've got the personal uh, improvement project of reducing my own pre uh, prejudice. I have to extend myself and actively dismantle the riggings that disadvantage minorities and poor people in the country. I've got to 
think that way about my organization. I've got to think that way about institutions, my school. I've got to take more responsibility to be active in, 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 those, in, in those ways. That I think we can do. I do think it's, it's, uh, it's easier than being defensive and not doing it. I think doing it is, is, is possible. And when people make steps in that direction, I think they get encouraged about the, the possibility of, of, of doing it. So it, I, I would say that much, but I wouldn't say that means you can ignore these larger questions that you just raised. I think those, are, those should also be thought about. Uh, could I just mention, you said something interesting. You said think differently about capitalism. Well, just two points. First of all, the only time from each according to his means to each according to his, uh, from each according to his talents, to each according to his needs. The only time that's worked is at gunpoint. So um, I actually think um, we probably are going to have, I hope we're going to continue to have a capitalist system. I think we're already rethinking, um, let me call it the social contract underneath. When you start to hear uh, businesses talking about not just uh, shareholders, but also stakeholders, um, trying to take responsibility for issues like uh, retraining of people. Um, I think that whole notion of uh, social responsibility has become more important. And uh, I do think we need to look at, at our uh, institutions. I've said I think we need to look at our educational institutions. I'm perfectly happy to look at redistribution, but only if I can look at efficacy as well. And so this is going to be a very tough conversation, and it's going to have to be a conversation in which we are willing to listen to views that are not uh, our own um, and recognize that uh, nobody's had very good answers here. And if we're going to get to good answers, we're going to have to be um, data-driven and uh, open to solutions, but open to questions that we maybe don't want to, have, don't want to hear. Wonderful. You're here. Okay, uh, Brian, do you have a view? Yeah, look, I think that we are facing what I would consider an existential crisis. And by that, I don't mean that America is going to go away, but I mean our vision of what America is is being challenged. And I think um, I'm, to the extent I'm optimistic, I'm optimistic because people are educating themselves about the nature of that challenge. I'm optimistic because reality, in reality, I don't think the solutions are that hard. I think we produce solutions, they've just only been for certain communities. I think if we were committed to producing solutions that were more inclusive, I think we could do that. So I'm optimistic about that. Um, and, and we'll see. Like, I agree with Condi that it's going to require a, a number of different views. Um, and what, I, what makes me a bit optimistic and what I think is most important is the will to make the change. Okay. Uh, Nate? Well, all right. Uh, let me start Dower and then hopefully uh, end up uh, with, uh, that. Look, I, I uh, obviously, since I've dropped everything else I'm doing and just working with local election officials to try to see if we can pull off this election, I am, uh, you know, extremely worried that um, if we cannot pull off the basic mechanics of our democracy uh, in November, that, that this is a... Um, this is yet another existential crisis to add to the ones that we've been talking about here. And so I, I, I do worry in this atmosphere of distrust and polarization that we don't have the uh, ability to weather uh, a, a kind of Bush versus Gore scenario on steroids uh, that, that we would maybe suffer then. Um, 
but I, I, I think there are some uh, advances that we're making, um, whether it's poll worker recruitment, some of these other mechanics, uh, those kinds of issues. I think that, 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 that there are some glimpses of, of hope, but we still have a long way to go. I'll just say that unless we can deal with the polarization that is afflicting our political system, it's hard to see how we have sustained remedies to some of the racial divisions that you were that we discussed here. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I agree that that um, where we might see the most hope is in the private sector actually making more bold um, uh, sort of moves uh, as well as at the state and local level uh, because our national politics is, is pretty screwed up right now. Okay, that's great. Uh, um, John Donahue. I mean, I think if you look at uh, Barack Obama's inaugural address, it sort of uh, laid it out. He said, we have to be much more serious. Uh, the time for the foolishness uh, uh, of the past uh, uh, you know, is 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 over, and and we have to be serious about all aspects of um, American policy, and um, uh, you know, I think there's much in the Republican Party that needs to be addressed, but that doesn't mean that, you know, simplistic magical thinking on the on the left is is going to be the answer. Everything needs to be uh, evaluated critically. Uh, and and the American public needs to be much more sophisticated to see that uh, they are very vulnerable to fear mongering uh, and and magical thinking and 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 that will be the uh, to, to the great detriment of the country if we can't get beyond that. I, I agree with Condi that every measure needs to be thoroughly scrutinized for effectiveness because we don't have unlimited resources that we are going to direct to dealing with these social problems. So every dollar needs to be spent wisely. Um, and and there's, there's much room for improvement both on the, uh, on the left and the right, and we both have to take those steps very, very seriously. Okay, thank you. Uh, Michelle, do you have the last word? Oh, wow. Um, all right. Well, I guess like um, Nate began, things are grim right now, so it's hard to kind of put a happy face on it. I'm a, as somebody who does municipal bankruptcy, I'm heading into a very busy period, and things are really worrisome for governments right now. Um, uh, and I would say that I don't believe in single heroes for systemic intergenerational problems. I don't believe in them, whether they're individual billionaires or city mayors or presidents of the United States. Um, I think that all real change is happening. It has happened um, through networks. Um, so I guess I would say that for me on a more um, personal level, I have kind of two touchstones, especially right now, that give me confidence in the larger human trajectory, and I guess one is African-American history itself. I think it's um, the white woman, which I am, um, the project of African-American liberation, the ongoing project, is um, such an extraordinary part of American history, and it is the best testament and capacity for resilience and survival and compassion and forgiveness that, um, you know, that I know of. And so the truth is that learning about that history, sort of the musical traditions, all of the sort of arts world, the, that world of sort of black America gives me confidence in hard times and sort of the durability of faith and progression. 
Um, and then meanwhile, I think we have in the country um, just an incredible new generation of young leaders of color, both American but also Latinx um, and from other um, minority groups. Um, and I think they are becoming more and more um, informed and direct and um, skilled at kind of moving policy. Um, so I, when I look at our young kind of politicians, well, I don't believe any one of them has like got this. Um, local, state, and federal levels that um, that knows a lot and has a lot of. Um, Everything okay? I think we're hearing some. We're hearing a something an issue there in the background. Michelle, are you with us? Oh, yeah, yeah. That wasn't, yes, sorry. I signed off. Yes, that was the last thing I had to say. Thanks, Rick. <laughs> oh. Okay, Larry, over to you. Okay, I, I think that, that ends it. Um, thank you very much. Um, Rick is going to host an, another What Happens Next in two weeks uh, with more of an emphasis on policing. Uh, next Sunday, I'm going to host um, the usual What Happens Next, and it's going to focus more on memory, what we're going to remember from COVID, and also how the COVID virus affects our brains. Uh, with that, uh, I'd like to thank our speakers for uh, working so hard and preparing for today's event. I'd like to thank my co-host, Rick Banks, who made this possible, uh, who knew all the various speakers and, and made this incredible presentation about the impact of race. Thank you very much. You may sign off and look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you all. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks, everybody. Yep, bye-bye. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This does conclude today's conference call. You may disconnect your phone lines at this time and have a wonderful day. Thank you for your participation.